Hello there and welcome to the RTE Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures podcast, a reshaping of the iconic RTE Thomas Davis Lectures, which considered radio to be a university of the air, sharing the scholarship and creative thinking that shapes public decision-making and makes sense of our present selves. I'm Cleona Nianloen, its producer. The consultant editor and host of this present series on Making Home is architectural historian Dr Ellen Rowley. In this episode, she introduces a lecture on the changing nature of home, from home as shelter to home as investment, recorded with a contributing audience on location in Moiros Community and Enterprise Centre in Limerick City in the summer of 2019. This RT series was made with funding from academic partner University College Dublin and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence. Today's talk, Unmaking Home, Homes for Shelter or Homes for Investment, by Professor Michelle Norris from UCD's School of Social Policy, Social Work and Social Justice, comes closest in our series to that original Thomas Davis purpose. Michelle Norris has been researching the financing systems of housing in Ireland, and she has been chair of the Housing Finance Agency, and continues to sit on that committee. And recently, she joined the committee of the Land Development Agency. Michelle Norris's lecture will cast back to under-discussed episodes in Ireland's recent history, namely the 1940s and 1980s, and a little bit to the early 2000s, so as to map mortgage and lending patterns, and among other things, to discuss the reliance of social housing on central government. Quite simply and complexly, she will ask, what have we been doing and what might we do? Michelle has published widely and she is the eminent social policy scholar of Irish housing and urban regeneration. So it is appropriate that the venue for her public lecture is the Moiros Community and Enterprise Centre here in Limerick. Moiras is best known as the largest social housing estate in Ireland, built from 1973 until the late 1980s. And then, since 2008, Moiras and South Hill have been experiencing or undergoing a serious regeneration process. Michelle, you were keen to bring your talk to Moiras. Why is that? I was keen to bring my talk to my Ross because my Ross is, is a place I know very well. I research social housing, social housing neighbourhoods and the communities who live there. And I've been involved in various research projects on my Ross going back to 1999. And I've got to know the place very well since then and have great regard for the community here. It's a, it's a neighbourhood that's had its problems but also has an indomitable community spirit, absolutely wonderful community groups. And this building we're in is testament to the work of the community groups in my Ross. Uh, And we had trouble getting an evening when they were free to hold the lecture. So it's really a testament to the vibrancy of the community and the the community leaders who work so hard um, in this neighbourhood. So it's a great pleasure to be back and thank you very much for hosting the lecture. So let us welcome Michelle Norris with her questioning lecture, Unmaking Home. Homes for Shelter or Homes for Investment? (laughs) 
In a 2015 Irish Times article, Fintan O'Toole eloquently captured a question which puzzled many people in Ireland today. He said, Felmonglery is the preparation of animal skins for tanning. A pollard is an animal that has had its horns removed. In 1949, official statistics still listed Ireland's principal products as including felmonglery, laces, pig's head, pollard and snuff. Yet in that same year, 1949, my mother's family moved into a Dublin Corporation house where I would later grow up. A poor, primitive, backward economy could build social housing on a large scale for people who lack decent homes, and the rich, developed, globalised Irish economy of 2015 can't. When people learn that I research and write about housing policy, they regularly ask me similar questions. Why is homelessness so widespread when Ireland has never been wealthier? How did we build so many more social housing units for low-income households in the 1950s when Ireland was a much poorer country? Why can't young couples who both earn good salaries afford to buy a house when families with just one salary could buy a house in the 1970s? In this lecture, I endeavour to answer these questions by examining the history of Irish government intervention in the housing market since the start of the 20th century. I also reflect on what this history reveals about the theme of this lecture series, Making Home. Despite the wide scope of the issues I plan to explore in the lecture, they are all underpinned by a single straightforward insight. That is that changes in government policy on housing over the last century, and therefore in our society's success in meeting the needs of those who can't afford to buy housing from the market, reflect changes in the dominant view of how we should meet the socio-economic challenge of making homes. Or in other words, how we should provide and pay for the dwellings in which we live. During the first two-thirds of the 20th century, funding for all types of housing in Ireland came primarily from government, not from the market. And a large proportion of dwellings were also provided directly by local government. In the absence of a well-developed welfare state, these extensive government housing subsidies provided a vital alternative welfare system. Unlike its UK counterpart, in the 1950s the Irish government didn't provide free universal health care or publicly funded second level education or even social welfare payments for large sections of the population. Instead, government housing subsidies protected households from the vagaries of the free market by enabling them to purchase or rent a home for an affordable price. By the late 20th century, the dominant understanding of making homes had changed. Housing was still a key form of welfare for the one-tenth of the population living in social housing. But for the vast majority of households, it had been redefined as a commodity, something which should be provided by the market, something to invest money in and to profit from. Many have benefited from this paradigm shift. This obviously includes banks, property developers and private landlords, but it also includes the ordinary householders who've been able to afford to purchase a home and who have availed of the additional social welfare benefits and health services, which the reduction in public spending on housing has enabled governments to fund. However, the transformation of homes into commodities has also come at a significant cost, particularly for those low to middle income households who can't secure social housing but who find market rents or house prices unaffordable. 
for younger households who don't enjoy the government housing subsidies which were provided to their parents and grandparents and most of all for the over 10,000 people who are currently homeless. The story of changing arrangements for funding and providing homes in Ireland is not a simple story, however. It's not a story just of good decisions or bad decisions, of choosing market instead of state solutions or right-wing instead of left-wing policies. It's a complex story of choices, priorities and compromises of shifts in the nature and distribution of political power and of social, economic and financial system change. These complexities and also the imbalance of power between those who have gained and lost from the commodification of our housing system suggests that reinstating housing's role as a major form of welfare would be very challenging. In my view, promoting equity between social classes and generations social cohesion and also economic stability requires that we should do this. However, whether a majority of my fellow citizens are willing to make the sacrifices required to achieve this is open to question. How can housing be a form of welfare? And what do I mean when I say that in Ireland, housing was defined primarily in this way for most of the last century? I mean that from the 1880s, Government subsidisation of housing expanded slowly but steadily in terms of the associated expenditure, in terms of the number and types of subsidies provided and the proportion of households who received them. By the mid-1950s, a United Nations study calculated that state housing subsidies in Ireland were the highest among 15 Western European countries examined. 97% of new dwellings built in Ireland received public subsidies at this time and 75% of the capital for building, buying or renovating dwellings was derived from the Exchequer. This level of public spending on housing was a multiple of the rates spent in Italy, Portugal and Greece which at the time had similar national incomes to Ireland. The governments of wealthier countries such as the UK and the Netherlands did invest heavily in housing but they also invested in the development of comprehensive welfare states, which provided free education, healthcare and generous social welfare benefits. Whereas in Ireland, the subsidisation of housing and also high spending on old age pensions constituted most of our welfare state in the 1950s. Ours was not a standard Western European welfare state, therefore. It was a housing focused welfare state or a property-based welfare state. Social housing's role in these arrangements is well known and is often remembered approvingly today. Public subsidies for social housing were first made available in the late 19th century and the first local authority social housing scheme was built at Green Street Ballybricken in Waterford City in 1878. Take-up of these subsidies was high and by the outbreak of World War I, Irish local authorities had provided almost twice as many dwellings as their British counterparts. Social housing output increased further after independence, particularly after Fianna Fáil first gained office in 1932. Between 1932 and 1960, social housing accounted for 55% of all the new housing built in the state, and the proportion of Irish households who lived in this sector increased to an all-time high of 18.6%. Much of the social housing built at this time 
rehoused families who'd previously lived in private rented slums. These new social housing neighbourhoods, such as Ballinacurra Weston in Limerick, Ballyfehan in Cork, and Drimna in Dublin, provided their occupants with a secure tenancy for life in a good quality dwelling at a sub-market rent and thereby affected an enormous improvement in their welfare. Less widely remembered, however, is the huge scale and widespread availability of government subsidies for home ownership. Local authorities were empowered to provide homeowner mortgages and grants by legislation introduced prior to Irish independence. However, funding for and take-up of these supports increased significantly after independence and a suite of additional government grants and tax subsidies for homeowners were subsequently introduced and then expanded repeatedly. As a result, by the early 1960s, almost 30% of the cost of a standard suburban house could be recouped from government by the purchaser. For example, a buyer of a house costing £3,000 could benefit from a state grant of £275, a supplementary grant for low-income households of £275, remission on property taxes of £281 and a stamp duty reduction of £50, resulting in a total subsidy of £891. The households who availed of these subsidies also qualified for tax relief on their mortgage interest and they often relied on government to provide their mortgages too. Local authorities provided half of all mortgages in the early 1960s and almost all of the remainder were provided by building societies which were tax subsidised by the state. Local authorities also built large numbers of dwellings for sale and they funded private housing cooperatives called public utility societies to do the same. Large sections of Dublin's north inner city suburbs, including Merino, Finglas and Whitehall were constructed in this way. Therefore, for much of the 20th century, home ownership in Ireland wasn't the mainly market-provided and funded housing tenure it is today. Rather, it was a socialised tenure, funded primarily by government as part of a property-based welfare state. The homeowner and social housing streams of this property-based welfare state were united by the introduction of sales of social housing to tenants in the 1930s in rural areas and the 1960s in towns and cities. Dwellings were sold at a discount for market value and this discount is currently set at a maximum of 60%. Some two-thirds of the social rented dwellings ever built by local authorities have been sold under these schemes. These sales played an important role in enabling low-income households to become home buyers and are one of the key reasons why home ownership in Ireland expanded to one of the highest rates in Western Europe during the 20th century. In 1991, 80% of Irish households were homeowners, compared to 55% in France and just 36% in Germany. I would now like to move on and to discuss the decline of housing's role as a form of welfare and its redefinition as a commodity. This development was evident from the 1970s, but the main public policy changes which drove the commodification of housing were concentrated in the two severe economic and fiscal crises which have occurred since then. The protracted recession of the 1980s and the economic collapse triggered by the housing market and banking crash in 2007. During the 1980s recession, the system of government mortgages and subsidies for home buyers was almost entirely dismantled 
and replaced with market finance supplied by commercial banks. Many of these reforms were implemented in 1987 and 1988 as part of the austerity programme devised and overseen by the Fianna Fáil finance minister, Ray McSharry. For instance, almost the entire suite of home purchase and renovation grants were abolished over the course of these two years and access to local authority mortgages was limited to low-income households who couldn't get a commercial loan. So government lending fell from a quarter of all mortgages in the early 1980s to just 2% of mortgages by the end of the decade and it's remained below that level ever since. In the absence of this lending, a new source of mortgage credit was obviously required and deregulation of the banking sector met this need. This deregulation process involved the removal of most government controls on bank lending and around this time tax subsidies for building societies were also removed and the legal distinction between building societies and banks was abolished. This resulted in the transformation of almost all building societies into banks and since then banks have provided almost all mortgage credit in Ireland. In the absence of meaningful government controls on bank lending for mortgages and very few other avenues for banks to generate profit, bank lending for mortgages expanded steadily from this time and as a result so too did house prices. Arrangements for funding social housing provision were also reformed in the mid-1980s. The long-standing system of borrowing for social house building was abolished and replaced with central government grants. Government funding for social housing provision was reduced concurrently with the result that output fell sharply. Although funding and output of social housing did increase as the economy recovered in the 90s, as a proportion of total house building, the social housing sector has never regained the highs it reached in the 1930s, 40s and 50s. This declining output and continuing sales to tenants has shrunk the social housing sector. By the early 1990s, the proportion of households living in social housing was only half the level seen in the 1960s. As a result, government has become increasingly reliant on rent supplement for private renting tenants to house low-income households. Previously, government housing supports for low-income households have been provided outside the market via social housing provision, and this acted as a counterweight to private rent inflation and also added to housing supply when the market failed to do so. Increased use of rent supplement had the opposite effect. These subsidies have helped to inflate private rent and also enabled the marked expansion in the number of landlords. In the 1990s and early 2000s, these new landlords were mainly small investors who have availed of the new buy-to-let mortgage products offered by the newly deregulated banks. Ireland's most recent economic crisis, which commenced in 2007, has seen an intensification of this process of commodification of home. It has precipitated a hyper-commodification of housing, if you will. The collapse of almost the entire domestic banking sector was a key driver behind this development. It led to a sharp contraction in credit availability, both for home buyers and for the domestic housing developers who traditionally built dwellings for these home buyers to purchase. The establishment of the National Asset Management Agency in 2010, which took over the bank's property development loans, was also important from the perspective of commodifying homes. A significant proportion of the property used as collateral for the loans taken over by NAMA 
were sold to international property funds and to large corporate landlords. This sector has subsequently grown further, particularly in cities, because it is not dependent on domestic banks for finance and also because its expansion has been facilitated by government, for instance, by the legalisation of real estate investment trusts in 2013. Two-thirds of all the dwellings bought by landlords in Dublin last year were bought by institutional investors, and they are among the most active residential property developers in the city at the moment. This development has increased the commodification of home because, unlike the small amateur landlords who traditionally provided most private rented housing in Ireland, the new large institutional landlords invest primarily to generate yield from rents, not capital gain. Consequently, institutional investors are focused largely on servicing those who can afford to pay very high rents and on the luxury end of the housing market. Their dominance of the Dublin market in particular means that the need for affordable housing to rent and to buy is not being met. The expansion and increasing unaffordability of private renting is important because the proportion of households who are homeowners has fallen by 10% since 1991. This means that more and more people are renting. This development is likely related to wider socioeconomic trends such as increased migration and precarious working conditions, but it also reflects the marked reduction in mortgage lending following the banking crisis, the introduction of stronger regulation of mortgage lending, and also over the longer term the withdrawal of the government subsidies for home buyers which were made available in the past. Because housing is the only form of wealth most people have, falling home ownership makes distribution of wealth in Irish society more regressive and it raises challenging questions about how lifetime renters will meet their housing costs in old age. Most private sector workers in Ireland have modest or no occupational pensions, but pensioners manage because most of them are outright homeowners who've repaid their mortgage in full and their housing costs are low. If in the future more households find themselves renting from private landlords in retirement, either occupational pensions will have to improve to enable them afford this, or more likely the taxpayer will have to foot the bill. The austerity programme prompted by the economic crisis, and particularly its focus on cuts to public capital spending, including spending on social housing, was also an important driver of the commodification of home. Funding for social housing fell by 88% between 2008 and 2014 and output fell from 7,500 dwellings in the former year to just 642 in the latter. This development increased government reliance on rent supplements for private rented tenants further and these have recently been renamed housing assistance payment. However, as the economy has begun to recover after the economic crash and house prices and rents rose again, the limits of this policy have been exposed. Particularly in cities, housing assistance payment recipients can source or maintain private rented tenancies. And this is the main cause of the unprecedented rise in homelessness we've seen in recent years. This story of the transformation of homes from forms of welfare into commodities raises an obvious question. Why? Why did we stop providing so many homes for welfare? And what precipitated the transformation of homes into commodities? The fact that many of these policy reforms which enabled this development were introduced during the economic crisis of the 1980s and again in the late 2000s suggests that funding problems were the primary causal factor. And there is no doubt that the spiralling national debt, rising tax burden 
and difficulties in funding vital public services, which characterise both periods, were important factors behind policymakers' decisions to cut spending on housing. However, policymakers did have other options, of course. They could have raised taxes further, or they could have cut spending elsewhere. This suggests that the fiscal crisis were just the proximate causes of the end of the housing as welfare model, and we need to look elsewhere for the ultimate causes. Many political scientists attribute the reduction in funding for social housing and the deregulation of banking to neoliberalism. The political ideology which espouses the rolling back of the state and the freeing of markets. And there's no doubt that the outcomes of these developments in Ireland were neoliberal in character. However, the neoliberal ideological arguments used to justify similar policies by the governments of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were thin on the ground in Ireland. Instead, Irish politicians' speeches exhibited a blind faith that the market would deliver the housing supply and finance required, coupled with the failure to appreciate the risks of this approach. This rationale is exemplified by the speech which Fianna Fáil's housing minister, Porig Flynn, made to the Dáil in 1987 when he announced the end of large-scale local authority mortgage provision. He predicted, and I quote, that both banks and building societies have considerable scope for providing loans to many applicants who would otherwise consider they had no alternative but to approach their local authority for house purchase loan. Flynn's call proved correct and the number of new mortgages issued increased by almost half between the mid-1980s and the end of the decades and banks provided almost all of this additional lending. This rising credit availability was, of course, helped by international developments, such as the deregulation of credit markets in many developed countries and the process of European Economic and Monetary Union, which culminated in the establishment of the euro. However, over the longer term, the deregulated banks provided excess credit and applied lax lending standards to maximise their profit, which in turn drove galloping house price inflation and ultimately the housing market crash in 2007. Ireland also differs from the UK and the United States in that cuts to public funding for social housing provision and mortgage market deregulation were not accompanied by the rolling back of the welfare state. Rather, the opposite occurred in this country. The Irish welfare state finally began to expand in the late 1960s and 1970s when, for instance, free second-level education and hospital care, universal social insurance benefits and benefits for lone parent families were introduced. Government subsidisation of home ownership and social housing was not cut back at this time, but spending stopped growing. During the 1980s economic crisis, government cut spending on the property-based welfare system while maintaining spending on social services and social welfare benefits. This suggests that the affordability of Ireland's property-based welfare state was made possible by the underdevelopment of the mainstream welfare state during the first half of the 20th century. Conversely, to enable the mainstream welfare state grow from the 70s, public subsidies for housing had to shrink. One of the key architects of modern Ireland, Dr T.K. Whitaker, regularly made the point that this trade-off between public investment in housing and other categories of public spending did not just apply to the welfare state. In an address given to the Statistical and Social Inquiry Society in Trinity College, Dublin, on the eve of his appointment as Secretary-General of the Department of Finance in 1956, Whitaker highlighted the trade-off between 
very high levels of what he called unproductive public capital spending, particularly on housing, and low levels of productive investment, particularly on industry and also on education. This line of thinking was echoed in the landmark 1958 Department of Finance white paper, the first programme for economic expansion, the content of which closely reflected Whitaker's views. This inspired a strong Department of Finance campaign to cut public spending on housing during the decades which followed. Problems related to the management and funding of social housing were also significant factors in decisions to cut output of these dwellings from the 1980s onwards. Residents of social housing estates such as My Ross will be well aware of weaknesses in local authorities' records of maintenance of dwellings and in housing estate management, particularly management of antisocial behaviour. Although I believe that these problems are not widespread and most social housing estates are very successful, they had negative implications for the communities affected and these problems also inspired a loss of faith particularly in local authority provided social housing among senior civil servants and to a lesser extent politicians. The reforms to the funding of the social housing sector introduced from the middle of the 20th century also made this sector much more expensive for central government to fund. During the first half of the 20th century social housing building was funded by loans raised by local authorities. Although central government subsidised the interest on these loans most of the repayment costs were met by local property taxes, known as rates, and by tenants' rents, which were linked to the cost of providing their homes. Crucially, this system meant that the cost to the central exchequer of providing social housing was low, and therefore the trade-off between this and other public spending priorities was minimised. However, this financing system was slowly but surely weakened as the 20th century progressed. For instance, rents were linked to tenants' incomes from the 1960s, which meant that they no longer covered the cost of housing provision. And the proceeds of dwellings to tenants at a discount from market value often didn't cover the cost of repaying the loans taken out to build these dwellings or of providing replacement social housing. Most significant of all was the weakening of income from rates, however, following vociferous lobbying from property owners to have their bills reduced. When this lobbying finally resulted in the abolition of rates on dwellings in 1978, this removed the main source of revenue used to repay the loans which funded social housing provision and made this funding system unviable. Therefore, Ray McSharry's decision to abolish loan finance and replace it with central government grants was in some ways a logical one. However, it had two key disadvantages. In the long term, it significantly constrained social housing output because the sector is now competing with other central government spending priorities for funding. It also contributed to a strongly pro-cyclical pattern of investment in social housing, whereby spending increases when the economy improves, but it is always the first to be cut when recessions occur, because cutting spending on social welfare benefits or public service salaries is much more politically challenging than deferring capital investment on social housing or on other infrastructure. So to conclude, I called this lecture On Making Home, and this title hints at my assessment of the process of turning homes into commodities and the retreat of the homes as welfare model. In my view, this process has gone too far and generated too many social and economic problems in terms of housing unaffordability, homelessness 
inequality and economic instability. It should be at least in part rolled back and the best features of the housing as welfare model should be reinstated. This would include additional spending on social housing provision and also on supports to enable uh, low to middle income earners to purchase a home. This is not an original view, of course. It is probably shared by the majority of politicians in Doyle Aaron. It's definitely shared by the majority of non-governmental organisations in the housing and homelessness fields, and also by the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Housing, whose recent reports has strongly criticised the social impact of the hyper-commodification of housing, which has emerged in recent years. What is rarely mentioned, however, and what I have tried to elucidate in this lecture, is the large number, variety and complexity of the different factors which have got us to these places. The factors which drove the hyper-commodification of housing were partially ideological, but they were also practical in nature. High levels of public spending on housing until the 1980s generated affordability problems for government and reduced the potential for funding other public spending priorities. Furthermore, the majority of the population have benefited from the commodification of housing, although the number who have lost has clearly grown in recent years. This complexity of the factors which have driven the commodification of housing suggests that it will be difficult to roll back and explain why little or no progress has been made in doing so in recent years, despite the fact that this model has contributed to an economic crash of unprecedented scale and inspired strong campaigning for reforms. The history of government intervention in housing provision in Ireland demonstrates that if we are to do so and reinstate the best features of the housing as welfare model, proponents of this approach can't rely solely on ideological or rights-based argument. Although housing is a human right and government intervention is necessary to protect the right to housing, advocates of this approach need to offer a detailed and practical strategy for policy reform, which addresses the serious practical flaws which undermined the model of greater public investment in housing in the past. We need to acknowledge that higher public investment in housing will realistically involve difficult trade-offs in terms of lower public spending in other areas, increased taxes, and also the redistribution of some of the gains made by those who have benefited from the commodification of housing to those who have lost. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Everyone living in a home in Ireland or homeless in Ireland today has relevant experience in relation to the themes and issues of your lecture, Michelle. I'll turn first to Mike Finn. Mike, you are a Limerick native, a playwright. I'm a writer, so I play with words. So as Michelle was speaking, I started to ponder the difference between a house and a home. It's a, a refuge, it's a, a nest, it's a place that we put down roots, where we raise a family, where we get involved in our community and our neighborhood and so on. A house is a building. I have a very good experience of social housing here. Um, my mum and I lived for 10 years in council house less than half a mile from here. And my mum was there for 34 years. As somebody who had no, she had no desire to buy a house. Not everybody wants to be a property owner. This is the other thing. We're kind of obsessed with owning property here. We need to reform the rental market. The only game in town for my mum and for my family was social housing. And it, and it worked extremely well for her. 
In the end, my mum was the only tenant in her street who, who didn't buy out her house, but she had no great desire to. She got great comfort from the fact that if something went wrong with the house, it would be fixed for her. There was great security in that. I'd like to turn to Paddy Flannery. Paddy, you're the manager of the Moy Ross Community and Enterprise Centre, a long-term resident of Moy Ross, moving here in 1975, I believe, and bringing up your six children here. And actually, when we look out the window, we can see your house in the middle of a terrace over there on the hill. Michelle's point about tenant purchase and the fact that houses are taken out of the stock shouldn't be a problem. I myself bought my house 30 years ago. I still remain living in Myros. I still make a huge contribution to the community of Myros. And that to me is the key factor. You get young people rent from the local authority, they move into a housing estate, they then eventually, when things improve, invest in that estate, possibly buying their house, and they're creating sustainability within the community. Part of the system we have going on at the moment is young people who go to the local authority, particularly if you've got a job and you've got some kind of income, you're first pointed in the direction of HAP, which means that you're pointed in the direction of a private landlord, which means you're taking money out of the system. Why can't the local authorities be the landlord? Why is houses stigmatised as being social houses? It's not the houses that are social, it's where we get our money from. Houses are houses wherever you get them. It's how you pay from is what needs to be looked at. Mike touched on it there. Bricks and mortar make houses. People make homes. People build communities. When I signed up for my house, I signed our interagreement with the corporation. In that interagreement, there was a list of things I had to do to look after that house, to use that house for the purpose by which I got it. And that's still the same today. Our problem is there is nobody there to enforce that obligation on people. At this point, maybe small minority of people all over the country living in social houses, holding the rest of communities to ransom and allowed to get away with it. We need a system that manages estates in all rented accommodation, not just in social houses. My name is Alan Mayer. I'm the editor of Changing Ireland magazine, based here in Moyross. And often when there's a, a marriage breakup or whatever, a home breakup, the man moves out. But the man has nowhere to move to often. And this is a question, uh, Michelle, please. What should the government do or what should we as a society do as fast as possible for men who don't have anywhere to go? The social housing sector was built primarily for families and in fact for the big families we used to have in the past. And the vast majority of our social housing stock is three bedroom houses. In view of falling family size, there is a very strong argument for not building any more family housing and building more social housing, which is small, aimed at single people, mentioned single men, also older people, and using that then to free up the existing three-bedroom houses for families. There are some really good initiatives around this going on around the country. We just need more of them. Eileen Humphreys, I work in Limerick City and County Council. If we look at social housing and people who lived in social housing at certain points in time, there was a great deal of upward social mobility as things began to pick up. And in fact, in this city, O'Malley Park was built for a workforce to work in the factories that were attracted in. At different points in time, people who found themselves in social housing later were people who couldn't adapt to economic change. That whole dynamic has accelerated. You cannot think of housing not being connected with other factors because a whole approach to housing is very connected to how our economy develops and the cycle of development now and where, where wealth is generated and where, who controls the wealth. I think we need more innovation in thinking in terms of how we address 
the problem of housing in the future because it has to be connected to where we're at now as a society. Shannon Sanron from Limerick City and County Council. How do you see the Land Development Agency unfolding and what role do you think it will be remembered for, I suppose, in however long that body is in place? We need an organisation like the Land Development Agency to manage government intervention in housing to smooth out supply and get us out of the boom-bust cycle, housing market cycle we now seem to have been stuck in since the 1980s. I'm on the board of the Land Development Agency, but I, I wouldn't necessarily have set up an agency to do this because I am a great believer in local government managing things. But I think the idea of intervening in the, the market and trying to manage land markets and housing markets on a more active basis is very, very important one for Ireland. Des McCafferty, um, I'm in the Department of Geography in Mary Macleod College here in Limerick. You cast your net back as far as the 1870s uh, forward to the present day. And I think it's very useful to do that because when you take that longer perspective, you're able to see the really significant changes that are happening in Irish society. I suppose speaking as a geographer, one of the things I'd be very conscious of is where we live in Ireland. As recently as 1971, about half the population, perhaps slightly less than half, lived in towns and cities. Nowadays, it's about two-thirds in the towns and cities and a third in rural areas. Could there be a link between where the people are in the country and the kinds of problems that you've identified in our housing system? It's one of the reasons for falling home ownership, because in the past, people may have complained about one-off rural housing being built out in the country. But it was a way for people to self-provide housing and to cut their housing costs and to afford a home. So those same households now living in a city just can't afford a home. The Dublin region has grown, but the population in Dublin city is falling and inner suburbs is falling because young families can't afford to live in places like Sandy Mountain, Black Rock and Drumcondra. And we're having to provide a whole new set of infrastructure for them. So that both has caused some of the problems we've talked about here. It's also the result of some of the problems I've talked about here, because just as government has deregulated finance for housing and moved out of providing non-market housing, we've also had a very, very loose planning system, as you know, and particularly very, very weak regional planning. So there's no doubt that pressure is reflected in terms of housing costs in Dublin and the Mideast just reflect population growth. And part of the solution has to be to try balance more population growth. Hi, I'm Miguel Garrity, coordinator of NCCWN Limerick Women's Network. I just want to respond in terms of about the responsibility or a lack of responsibility from private stakeholders and shareholders in the commodification of housing. The most marginalised who are impacted by commodification would be in the asylum seeking process. The social control that local authorities have in terms of the traveller accommodation plan and the lack of spending in that area. And then I suppose just in terms of Alan Maher's assessment of the issue of male homelessness, I think it's vital that that's recognised. However, for women, there are specific issues in terms of homelessness as well. Over 90% of single parent families are headed by women, which places them at a much greater risk of poverty and homelessness. And the idea of some of the solutions produced for women and children in terms of hotel accommodation and hub housing, they may be quicker to accept because they have children. A gender approach is needed, but not one against the other.
Tracy McElligot, um, development worker at my Ross Residence Forum. Do you think the time frame could be improved on in the time it takes to actually bring a development to a conclusion state could be going on for a few years, especially in the housing crisis, in social housing, yeah. Local authorities don't need planning permission for their own developments. They build the developments under a procedure called Part 8 planning, where they do consultation with the local community and then go for planning. And there are lots of objections to social housing, including by politicians who say there should be more social housing. But when anyone actually proposes building any social housing, they seem to object. So that's a factor which is very difficult to get around because the other option is to go through mainstream planning. But I think the main problems in terms of the speed of social housing delivery relate to how it's funded. So I mentioned that from the 1980s, we moved from this model of borrowing for social house building to relying on central government grants. And that model means we've kind of had a boom-bust system of output. Funding was cut very radically when we had the economic bust from 2007, and it's been quite slow to pick up. In a lot of local authorities, staff were cut back or not replaced. And then when the funding rises again, it can be very hard to get your development programme going. And also, the Department of Housing has been, certainly in the past, slow approving schemes centrally. And there is a process where the local authorities employ architects, and then architects in the Department of Housing review all the plans, and there's a lot of back and forth which can slow things up. So the Department of Housing has made a good deal of reforms to this, but I think there's a bigger issue, and that is just the centralisation of how we provide housing policy is very centralised and decisions are being made at a central level regarding the allocation of funding, even though local authorities are all subject to audit. James Blake of uh, Learning Hub Limerick in Kalili. You mentioned commodification of homes and I, I suppose I was just curious about the bank's role in this and the setting of mortgages and most mortgages now are predicated on at least two incomes. Going back to the point you made about the regionalisation of policy, that maybe that could be the case in specific areas of the country. That might encourage development in other areas where there is less requirement for two incomes, let's say, to buy a place. Some countries have long-term fixed-rate mortgages, where the mortgage is fixed for the whole duration of its lifetime. And it means that, particularly for people on lower incomes, house prices or their housing costs are more predictable. There's also evidence from economists that it's associated with less fluctuations in house prices up and down. Um, I think that's certainly something we, we should look at here. I don't know whether the banking system is reformable, to be frank. We should look to alternatives. In places like Austria, they have savings banks, Sparkasse, where people, they're given a government subsidy to save for a deposit and then that money is loaned out at a lower rate to other low-income low households to enable them to borrow for house purchase. And those systems work very well. And we did that in the past through local authority mortgages. The problem with local authority mortgages is they're now considered part of the national debt. But I think there is certainly potential for looking at alternative lenders. We don't have building societies anymore, which I think is a great pity, but looking at developing, say, credit unions into this Sparkasa model. Because I believe that for people who want to buy a home and can afford a mortgage, we should try keep house prices low, but also provide affordable finance. Thank you to Michelle Norris for her lecture on making home. Homes for shelter or homes for investment? That brings us to the end of our fourth lecture in this Davis Now lecture series, Making Home, where we were at Moy Ross Community and Enterprise Centre. 
do join us for the next lecture in the series, which is by Professor Hugh Campbell. How's emotion looking at psychology in architectural design in homes? You can listen back to this or any other programmes of the series on the RTA Davis Now Lectures website or as a podcast wherever you get yours. Thank you.